Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Amen. We're going to be reading this morning from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 34. We're mainly going to be focusing on uh, verses 25 to 34, and you'll see we kind of have to, Mark's got another one of these sandwiches where he starts a story, then moves to another story, and then finishes the first. So we're going to read from the beginning of the first story, and then we'll have to kind of pick it up again next week. So again, Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, hear the word of the sovereign, powerful, living God. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. One of the things that really unites human beings across the ages is that we oftentimes uh, have a magical faith. We are drawn to what we think are magical things or places, something that we think has some kind of power that is going to meet a need of ours. We can see this in the Scripture, for example. In in, uh, 2 Kings chapter 18, uh, there's a story, it's an unusual story, where if you remember when Israel was in the wilderness and there was a plague of snakes around them, and the Lord told Moses, make a bronze serpent and stick it on a pole and stick it up in the air, and anybody who looks to the serpent will be healed. Well, we don't hear anything about it after that. And then many years later in 2 Kings chapter 18, we discover Israel has taken that bronze serpent on a pole and they've started worshiping it. And so they have to grind it down and get rid of it because the people have missed the point that it was the Lord healed them, not the pole. But we see the same thing in John chapter 5. You remember there's a curious story where Jesus comes up to a man and the man is sitting there by the pool 
And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And as people so often do, they don't ask the quest, answer the question Jesus asked. They got something else. And the guy says, well, I would like to be, but you know, the, the waters get stirred up and it's kind of a magical thing. And I got to get down into the water and nobody's here to do it. You got some way to resolve that. And of course, Jesus looks at him and says, basically, that's not what I asked you. Do you want to be healed? And Jesus heals him completely apart from the waters. And we can think, well, that was people in the ancient world. But actually, if you read through human history, this was one of the things that, that led to the Protestant Reformation was in the, the medieval church, uh, people had gotten into you know, what were known as relics, bones of the saints and things that had, you know, touched uh, holy people, vials that were supposedly the milk of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And people would do pilgrimages because they believed if they could get near those things, it was somehow going to transfer power from God to them. And that was part of the Reformation to say that, that that's not the way that God calls us to work. And we can still think, well, that was even people in the Middle Ages. But turn on Christian TV and watch many televangelists and you can see the exact same thing. In fact, a few years ago in the great movie on Martin Luther, um, the, uh, Alfred, Alfred Molina, the great actor, when he wanted to study Tesla, uh, Tetzel, the, um, the Roman Catholic figure that had been selling indulgences, how did he uh, study for him? He watched modern Protestant televangelists. Not, not something that had gone on otherwise. So I point this out that whatever your background, humans kind of have this tendency. We, we look for these kind of things. We try to find these kind of places. And we're going to see today that there's a woman who may have a little bit of that kind of a magical faith going on. And Jesus is going to clarify for her where the power really resides, what the truth is, and what's really going on. So let's dive into our text. This story, as we noticed, there's kind of two stories going on here because there's a tale of two people. And the first person we meet is a man named Jairus that comes to Jesus. And we read about him in verses 21 to 24. And then we're not going to get the rest of the story until after we'll get to it next week, in essence. But notice, Jesus returns. And remember where we were last week. Remember he had gone across there had been a crowd, he left and went across the lake, and he got over to the, the region of the Decapolis and does the amazing miracle, drives the demons, the, the legion of demons out of the guy, and what's the response of the people there? What do they want with Jesus? Go away. They're not interested, okay? But Jesus comes back across the lake, and as soon as he gets back across, the crowd starts gathering. They're very different than what was going on in the Decapolis. They're trying to get near Jesus. It's a very different reaction than we had seen in Mark 5.18 from the townspeople in the Decapolis. And in the midst of this, with this crowd there, a man named Jairus comes forward, and he's a little different than the crowd. Notice, I mean, the crowd is just kind of an unnamed multitude, but we're given this person's name, Jairus, and he's an important person. He is the ruler of the synagogue. Now, synagogue rulers, and I'll probably go into this a little more next week, they're, they're not, quote-unquote, clergy, if you want to think about it in our modern terms. They're not professional religious people, um, but they have an important role. They oversee the synagogue, both making sure everything is set up for the meetings, that who's going to be reading the scriptures today, who's going to actually be speaking to us out of the scripture today. Kind of the conduct of the synagogue 
is done by this person, and it's Jairus. And we're going to see later on in the story when we get to the lower part, Jairus is a man of financial means. We would guess that probably by him being the synagogue ruler. He is one of the most important people in the entire area by having that position. And we're going to find out he's got servants. Uh, He's a person that is well-connected, well-respected, and powerful in the community. But notice when he comes up to Jesus, he doesn't come up in that format. What does he do as soon as he gets to Jesus? He falls on his feet. The last person we've seen fall, I mean, not falls at the feet of Jesus. The last person we saw do this was actually the demoniac. And so there's a link here between Jairus and this guy because they may seem to be very different in every other way, but you know what they got in common? They got problems. And only Jesus can resolve the issue. And so Jairus doesn't come with pomp and circumstance. He comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus because we learn his problem is he's got a daughter and she is at death's door. That's, that's kind of the phrase of what it means there when he says, my little daughter is dying. If you want to put it in our modern parlance, it's, my daughter is at death's door. I, I don't even know if she's going to make it till we get there. I need you to come and to come quickly. And he's apparently, he's heard about Jesus and he's got faith that Jesus can do something about this. And so he comes to Christ and Jesus immediately, we're told, takes off to go heal this man's daughter. And the crowd is following and pressing around him. As you can imagine, if you kind of put yourself in Jairus' spot, and again, we'll tease this out next week, is that crowd helping Jesus to get there as quickly as possible? Probably not. Jairus probably wants everybody just to leave so they can like jog over to the house. But the crowd is there, the crowd is pressing around him, and then even worse for Jairus, suddenly there's going to be an interruption that we're going to see about him. We're going to pick up that story with Jairus next week. Because at this point, we suddenly see a woman come into the narrative, and she's very distinct from Jairus. She's an outcast woman who is in great need. Notice in verses 25 and 26, we're told a woman was there, had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, she's been bleeding for 12 years. And if you just put yourself, I want us to put ourselves in this woman's place. If you had a bleeding that had gone on for 12 years nonstop, you're already in a not good place. But secondly, we have to understand, while that might be a medical issue for us, it's far more for this woman. Because she has this bleeding, she is ritually unclean. That means anything that touches her, anything she touches becomes unclean and and cannot be around other people. So she is cut off from all human contact like the Gadarene demoniac, or like the leper that we've seen before. So far worse than the physical malady she's got is the fact that this woman is cast off from society. Um, Now, notice furthermore, we read in verse 26, because as you can imagine, if you had that, you would be trying to get help. And so she goes to the doctors to get help. Now, we need to understand as we read into this story This is not a statement really against doctors. Doctors had very, 
very little understanding of what was going on back then. And to be blunt, oftentimes they made things worse. This was a common thing that happened back then. Um, so for example, in the Jewish Talmud, which is one of the religious writings of the day, it discusses on these exact kind of illnesses with, with somebody who's got a bleeding that won't stop, some of the cures. One of the cures that's listed for this type of affliction is you take a goblet of wine and you mix in some rubber, some alum, and some garden crocuses, and you drink it, and you are probably sick after drinking it, and it has nothing to do with stopping the bleeding. Another one was they tried to do a sudden shock <laughs> to just jump out and scare you, which might have cured you of the hiccups, but is not doing anything for this illness. And the one that struck me as really being probably really effective was taking the ashes of an ostrich egg and carrying them around in a special cloth, which I'm sure really, really helped. So as a result of these kind of things, in the Talmud it actually says, the best doctors are worthy of Gehenna, okay, which is hell, the best of doctors. And so, you know, today we often make lawyer jokes. They would have made doctor jokes, okay? Now, I'm, I point this out because those kind of things there do not sound like something a doctor would tell me. They do sound like something I would probably find on the internet to tell me to get better. But we should be grateful for doctors. It's kind of interesting. Luke, who was a doctor, does not include this part about the woman going to the doctors for all those years. Just, just an interesting sidelight. But... But, but I say this because we should thank God for modern medicine. I'm really, really grateful we have modern medicine. We have the modern knowledge of the body. That is a gift to us. But for this poor woman, she's probably been told, drink this wine with weird stuff in it. Okay, try to carry around some assage of an ostrich egg. Boo. And amazingly enough, nothing's worked. But one thing has come about from all these doctor's visits, and what's that? She's now absolutely destitute. Before she was sick with money, now she's just as sick or even more sick and she has no money left. So she is an outcast, she is destitute, her situation is worse at the end than it was at the beginning. This is as pitiable a picture as we saw with the demoniac last week. It is a horrible situation this woman was in. I, I, you, your, your heart has to go out to this person. Can you imagine if you were physically sick and the result of that is nobody wanted to be around you. You were cut off from society. So notice there's a tale of two people. Again, Mark, when Mark starts a story, gives another story, and then finishes the first story, he's saying, hey, read these two together. So we are to read them together, and in this case, what it really is, is it's a tale of two people. Now, make no mistake, there are certain things that tie Jairus and this woman together. They've both heard about Jesus, and they both come for help. The woman has been bleeding for 12 years, and how old is Jairus' daughter? 12 years old. So her bleeding started at the same time as Jairus' daughter. Uh, you can see that in Mark 5.42. And they both have a desperate need that no one else can help. But the main thing about them is how different they are. Because Jairus is a man, she is a woman. And what does that mean in the culture and the world at that time? 
Yeah, her, her words of no account, she is of less value than he is from the beginning. So automatically in that world, we would assume Jesus might help Jairus and ignore the woman. Secondly, Jairus leads the synagogue. She's not even allowed in the synagogue. She can't go. She's ritually unclean. Third, Jairus is honored in the community. She's outcast from the community. Like the demoniac, like a leper, she's not even allowed around other people. Jairus is a man of wealth who has servants who are going to be able to come and go and do things. She has no money left. She's absolutely destitute and scratching by for her next meal. And the last thing is Jairus is Jairus. You know his name. She's not even named. Make no mistake, Mark is doing this as a literary device. Church tradition gives her the name of Veronica, says she was there later to wipe the face of Christ when he fell, and all these kind of things. But Mark's letting us know he's making a contrast. This woman doesn't even have a name because she is at the point that she is virtually a non-person. So of course, Jesus goes to help Jairus. He's wealthy, he's powerful, he's connected, he leads the synagogue. Of course we would expect him to go. But what about this non-person, this unclean thing? Will he care for her? Or is he only the savior of the rich and the powerful? So Mark wants us to read them together and think about that. And so we notice in the next thing, we, we read that in verses 27 to 29, she's going to be healed. But it's a strange story of healing because virtually every other time we've read about healing in the Gospels, they come and they ask Jesus and he reaches out and he heals. But notice that's not what happens here. The woman does not ask Jesus to heal her. She sneaks up behind him in the crowd, and she's thinking, if I can just touch his garment, I can get healed and nobody will be the wiser because she might get stoned or something if they realize she's in the midst of the crowd because anybody that she's touching is now unclean. Now, notice this. She might have some superstition in her faith. Okay, because she's thinking, you know, if I can just touch his garment, she's far from, from being alone in that. A lot of people thought if you could just touch the, the garment. Uh, you, we read in the book of Acts, people laying sick people out thinking if Peter's shadow can go across it, hey, that might, that might bring him on. People sending handkerchiefs to Paul to touch and all these kinds of things. So it's very common. And, but, but I think it's as likely She's afraid that if I did approach Jesus, what would he say? Stay away from me. I mean, I, I've heard he's merciful, and I've heard he's kind, but you know what I've experienced for 12 years? Nobody even knows who I am. And if anybody does see me, they start shouting unclean, and they push me away. And I'm afraid even this rabbi would. Despite what all I've heard, would he really accept me? But what she does have is hope and faith that Jesus can heal her. And so she goes among the crowd, risking it all, and she touches just the edge or tassel of his garment. And the second she does, Mark says, immediately she's healed. 
and she knows it. She can feel it in her body. Everything is shifted and changed. Now, we might expect there, because remember, we've got Jairus' daughter, and Jesus is on the way. So we might expect that that be the end of the story, but it's not. Jesus doesn't leave in that place. What we read is Jesus immediately, the NIV has at once, it's that same word, uthus, that Mark likes so much, immediately Jesus realizes that power has gone out from him to heal. Now this is interesting because what that means is Jesus is again not consciously healing the woman. She's reached out and touched even his garment, and in essence what we're being told is the Father is deciding to heal this woman. He's doing it through Jesus, but Jesus in his humanity is not even conscious of what's happened because all of a sudden, uh, I was re-watching the, the episode of this in The Chosen last night, and you know, in it, I mean, Jesus has this almost like a shock hits him, you know, that he can really feel power has gone out from him. We don't know exactly how it was, but clearly he knew because he stops and he can tell that power has gone out from him. And so he turns around and he says, who touched me? I, I know somebody has touched me and I know the Father has exerted his, his power. The power of God has been released through me to touch somebody, but I don't know who it is. Now at this point, we see the disciples in all their glory again. This is very much like in the boat, you remember? Don't you care? Don't you know what's going on around us that they, they don't understand? And we might think after the boat and after the gathering demoniac, they would realize if Jesus is asking a question, there's a reason, but they don't. They're like, seriously? We're on the way. This guy's important. We're on the way to heal his daughter. Don't you know? She's sick. We got to keep moving and you're stopping and you're asking, who's touching you? Might I point out there are hundreds of people around you, Lord? The answer is probably hundreds of people are touching you, okay? You're, you're, you're doing the, who touched me? He's touching me. She's not touching me, right? Lord, what are you doing and what are you thinking? Not a great moment for the disciples again, okay? But that's because at this point, they still don't get it. And so, you can, it's not told us in the story, but there's another person there. What if you're Jairus? What are you thinking about this stopping and asking who touched me? Let's be honest. All right, don't, don't wax religious on me. I would be frantic. Seriously, please, we have got to move. Can we get people to clear this out? Now you're stopping and trying to figure out who touched you. Does it really matter who touched you, Lord? My daughter's dying. Put yourself in his place. There's all this pressure, but notice we're told Jesus is not deterred by any of it. He's continuing to look around and saying, somebody touched me. Somebody received power through me, and I want to know who it is. This is a divine interruption that is going on here. And I will just say for us briefly, and again, we may delve in this more next week, but Jesus is sometimes working to meet needs that we don't even recognize. Amen. He is purposefully working, but that purposeful work can seem pointless or even counter to the needs we are thinking about. If you're Jay Iris and you are honest, you are frantic at this point. You are going off like the 4th of July inside like, 
what are you doing? We don't have time for this. And of course, we already know the story, right? It's going to get worse. Your worst fears are going to be confirmed. Great. She died because you stopped looking around for who did it. But see, Jesus is very purposeful in what he's doing. He's very purposeful in what he's doing. And so he stops and he wants to know. And finally, the nameless outcast woman who knows what's happened to her, she realizes he's not going to let this go. She comes and she falls at his feet and she is trembling with fear. And so notice again, notice how Mark is linking these things. She's trembling with fear just like the disciples were after Jesus had calmed the storm, just like the townspeople are after Jesus. Once again, this display of power that I just touched the very edge of the guy's cloak. He didn't even know that I had done it, and yet I was healed immediately. What kind of power is this? Who is this person? That's the question that Mark keeps driving home to us. And so she she finally falls down and she tells everything that happened. And so the end result of this stopping, this divine interruption is everyone knows of the miraculous healing. See, if she had just done it and Jesus had just kept going on, nobody would know. But now everyone knows what has happened. But there's something else going on because notice Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus is pronouncing her fully healed, fully saved, fully restored. He says she's healed and freed from her suffering and we have to understand there's an interesting thing that goes on. The, the word that's transferred there uh, about healed you, that word is the word sozo, which is usually saved you. When you say Jesus saves, it's Jesus sozos. I've been saved, I've been sozoed. It's the same word as I've been healed. And Jesus is pointing out, yes, she has been physically healed, but it's not only that she's been physically healed, she has been truly saved and truly restored. And notice, he gives clues, even if you can't read Greek, you can figure this out, because what's the first word he says to her? Daughter. Everyone else has cast you away, but though father and mother forsake you, the Lord has not forsaken you. You are my child. They don't know who you are. The rest of this crowd could care less about you or your story. I know who you are. I do care about your story. And so he refers to her as a daughter. She's been restored to a relationship with God. Her uncleanness has been removed. Because see, here's the, the amazing thing. This is another time where we see rather than the unclean person. In the law, if the unclean person touches you, what happens to you? See, you become unclean. If unclean things touch holy things, unclean things transfer their uncleanness and the holy thing is sullied, but not with Jesus. When unclean touches the holiness of Jesus, holiness transfers over and, and swallows up the uncleanness. Thanks be to God. Okay, and so that's what goes on here. Her uncleanness has been removed. And then notice what Jesus does. We are told, go in peace. Okay, this is the word shalom. This is that word which means a lot more than just absence of conflict. It means 
things are restored. Things are the way they're supposed to be. It is, it is right. It is good. And that's what he is pronouncing upon her. Do you understand? This is, this is the, the thing of like the Aaronic priest. She's not been able to be in worship. She's not been there. She's not heard the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And now she hears it. 12 years. She's never heard it. Now she hears, you're my daughter. You are restored. You have shalom. You have peace. Brothers and sisters, this is far more than physical healing. She's been restored to God. She's restored in herself and she's restored in the community all in a moment by reaching out and touching. So this outcast woman has had all of this happen, and it's done by the power of God through Jesus. And notice here, and this is part of why Jesus has made her stop too, because, see, otherwise she might think what healed her, the tassel of his robes. See, see this, is, this is why I started the way we we're, we. It's that bronze snake. No, it's not. It's the power of God. It's the boiling waters. No, it's not. It's the power of God. It's some saint's bones. No, it's not. It's the power of God. And so Jesus here wants her to know you didn't receive it through some relic, but by personal relationship and restorative power of Jesus Christ. That's how you got restored. You touched not just the garment of my cloak, but by faith you touched me. And we're going to come back to faith in just a moment. And so she may be an unknown, outnamed, unnamed outcast to others, but she is family to Jesus Christ. That's restoration. He's the savior of the outcast. Now, how do we apply this? There are a lot of things we could delve into. I'm going to deal, delve into just two of them and we'll come to the Lord's table. Number one, this story teaches us no one is outside the power of God to save. Jairus is respected, wealthy, connected man. The unnamed woman is a destitute, outcast woman. And it makes no difference to Jesus Christ. It makes no difference whatsoever. Such distinctions do not matter to God. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Jesus Christ. Paul's not saying here that, well, you were Jewish, but that's no longer your ethnicity. Of course it's still your ethnicity. Or that you were male and now you're female. No, you can't do such things. Or that even you were slave and you're now free. That oftentimes did not happen for people. But what he's saying is it doesn't make any difference. If you are a, a Greek female slave, you have the same access to God as a Jewish male, wealthy, connected person, the high priest. None of that matters to God. All of that has been removed. And so society privileged men over women, free over slaves, different people groups thought they were God's favor, but Jesus has removed all of those distinctions in coming before God. None of that matters. And so the destitute outcast woman has the same access as the wealthy, connected synagogue ruler Jairus. 
Okay, we need to hear and we need to understand that. And so for us in applying the word, I want to speak clearly as I can to us. If you are here, take heart. Whatever you think disqualifies you from knowing, from loving, from receiving from, from serving God is of no consequence to him. There are far too many believers that are walking around and we are struggling because of something in my past that I think disqualifies me. It does not. Our God is not a respecter of persons. And so you can be that unnamed woman on the edge of the crowd and you have the same access to God as anyone else who is known and lauded. I think on Judgment Day we are going to be shocked at some of the people that Jesus is going to laud, that I've never even heard of this person. God knew who they were. God knew who they were. Do not listen to the voice of the enemy. Do not despair or make excuses. Reach out to Christ. He will not push you away. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will never push away. Please hear this. We are so good, and our society is getting worse. One thing that we are in so many ways going back to New Testament times. And one of them is we are making more distinctions among ourselves than at any point in reason. We, we are breaking down into so many groups and trying to do things. None of that stuff makes any difference before God. None of that stuff. That does not identify who we are. You are the image of God. That's the most... The, 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 the important thing I can say about you is you are the image of God, and even more than that, you are the redeemed image of God. Biblically, there's only two races, the race of the saved and the race of those who are not yet saved and we are praying for and reaching out to and serving that they would become part of Jesus's people. Everything else does not matter. So, Please hear that and respond. And, and if there is something, I'm going to encourage you when we come to the Lord's table in a couple of moments, if there is something that you say, this thing is there, I sinned in this way, or I have this tendency, or I have this that has shaped me in a particular way, please lay that at the foot of the cross. It makes no difference. The second thing is, do I see that salvation and blessing come from Christ alone through faith alone? Notice in the text, it's really interesting. In verse 30, we're told that once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. Notice, it hadn't gone out from his cloak. It had gone out from him. Healing and salvation come from Jesus Christ. Because healing, salvation, and every other blessing comes from Jesus alone. We tend to think that healing and blessing and salvation are going to be found in some kind of a relic, some kind of a holy place, but they're not. They are found in Christ alone. And if you have him, you have everything you need. Now, there's a, look, when I got to go to Rome a few years ago, getting to stand on the spot and realizing that some early martyrs had been there, it was a, it was a moving moment. But can I tell you, not because it was any closer to heaven. It's not, okay? In Christ, you, you are as close to heaven as you're, gonna, as you're gonna be, okay? If we are in him, every blessing is in him, and there is nothing outside of him. But the second point, notice interestingly, 
Jesus in verse 34 says, your faith has healed you. Now, this is where people sometimes get confused. You know, it's an amazing statement, and it's more complex than faith equals healing, okay? And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to unpack it right now, and after hours I'm actually going to talk about kind of a relationship between faith and healing and healing in this time and age. Um, there's a lot more to be said about that. But what I do want us to focus on is notice what Jesus is saying is faith is critical. How many people do you think touched Jesus that day? I mean, the picture in the thing is clear. They're all pressing around him. I mean, that's why the disciples are like, what do you mean who touched you? All kinds of people are touching you. How many people got healed? And what's the difference? Because Jesus said, see, you were desperate. And in faith, you reached out to me and touched me. And so see, brothers and sisters, we can come every week and gather with God's people, and we can praise God, we can pray, we can read the Scripture, we can come to the Lord's table. But if I come without faith, what happens? See, there's another principle that happened in the, in the Reformation. This is a bit of Latin here, but there was a theology that developed that said this stuff works ex opere operato. And that means, long as the right words are said, if you get a little bit of bread and you get a little bit of, of the cup, you're good to go. It works. Whether that guy's got faith, you got faith, as long as we do, it's kind of like magic. In fact, I mean, you know, that's where hocus pocus came from people misunderstanding hoc est corpus. This is my body, okay? And you get hocus pocus out of that. It's not hocus pocus, okay? There's no hocus pocus going on here. God promises to meet if we come in faith. And if I don't come in faith, you don't receive. It's very, very simple. And notice the characteristics of faith in the story from this woman. Faith has a desperate desire for blessing. She knows Jesus is her only hope. She wants to be healed. Faith produces definitive action. She didn't sit around thinking about Jesus, reading a blog post about Jesus. What's she doing? He's there. I'm getting in the midst of the crowd. This is very much like we've seen earlier in Mark's gospel. We can't get to Jesus. We dig a hole in the roof and we lower our friend down, right? I mean, we are going to take the action necessary to get there. Faith is willing to risk. If she had been discovered, what would have happened to this woman? It would not have been good. It would not have been a pretty day because she was in the midst of it. She was making everybody else unclean by their way of thinking. Okay, it was a huge risk. And then notice at the end, faith was willing to publicly confess Christ. She came forward, she told what happened, which means she opened herself back up to the disapproval because it could have been after Jesus left and went on to Jairus. She's like, I can't believe you came in the midst of us and you say you're healed. I mean, that's what happens when you openly confess Christ, but it didn't matter. All of this is pointing to and showing her faith. Now, what does that mean for you and me? It means what I want to encourage us as we come to the Lord's table today, this table represents ultimate blessing, salvation, okay? Full restoration brought into the family of God. It represents all of God's covenant blessings to us. But brothers and sisters, we have to come in faith. 
we have to look to Christ in faith. And it's one thing to say that and do that in some moments, but how many of you know if you've, say, been asking for something for 12 years, you can get very weary? It can get to be very hard. Okay, and again, there's no simple formula because God is sovereign. But he calls us to reach out by faith. Here's one thing for certain. If that woman didn't have faith, would she have been healed that day? There's no reason to believe she would have. She had faith. She reached out. And so I want to encourage us as we come to the Lord's table, we're going to take a minute and let the Holy Spirit speak. And it may be, again, some area where you feel like the unnamed outcast woman. And the Lord wants you to hear and to receive and know you're not outcast. Know you're not cut off. It may be some area going on in your life, some sin you are struggling with. It may be some form of healing you need or relationship. But I want to encourage us to come in faith and ask the Lord. You don't, you don't have to resolve it. And I'm encouraging you right now, don't try and figure out every bit of theology and how it all works. It's rare that I'm telling you not to think theologically. But I'm telling you, I do know this, Jesus likes faith. He just likes faith. And he wants us to reach out to him in faith and trust and believe that he can extend his hand into whatever area it is. So let's take just a moment and let the Lord speak to us regarding what that is by his spirit. And then we will take the table together. As we come to the table, I want to remind you that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome to our table. It is for those who are looking to Christ in faith alone and realizing they have no other hope of salvation. Your, your situation, you can no more save yourself than this woman could heal herself or Jairus' daughter could raise herself from the dead. If you believe that, you are welcome to the table. If you don't, we encourage you to let it pass because it's not a magical relic. It's for those who have come to Christ by faith. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we confess that in our sin we were unclean, we were estranged from you and from others. We were even afraid to come to you, fearing you would reject us and send us away. But in your marvelous mercy, rather than rejecting us, you gave your Son in our place. And so we have heard your voice addressing us as your sons and daughters. Therefore, we approach your table in faith, 
receiving full salvation in every sense, Lord, through the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord, Scripture tells us that blood is precious, for life is in the blood. But how much more precious is the very blood of the Son of God? And your word says there is no cleansing apart from the shedding of blood. But yet, Lord, we know that the Old Testament sacrifices of animals could never remove our sin, for it infected our whole being, body and soul. But how powerful is your blood Lord Jesus Christ. Though we sinned and transgressed our whole lives long, you shed your blood once and our sin was cleansed. In a moment, we touched you in faith for just an instant and your blood healed our sin. And our place as your children was secured forever. So, Lord, we approach this table in faith, receiving full salvation through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take and drink. If you can stand with me, we will conclude in prayer. And um, next Sunday is Pentecost, but this Sunday, as we do virtually every Sunday, we're going to be crying out for the Lord to pour His Spirit out upon us, to stir these things up in us. Who would like to have faith to touch Jesus? Okay, then let's ask the Lord to stir that up in us. Lord, how gracious and how powerful You are. How great are Your promises and provisions for us in the New Covenant. Yet we know that you call for us to have faith, for without faith it is impossible to please you or to receive blessings from your hand. So like the woman in the gospel, Lord, right now we reach out in faith, knowing that you are able to do more than we can ask or imagine. As we follow close behind you, loving and trusting your wise and gracious provisions and plans for us. So Lord, we ask, pour out your Spirit upon us now. Lord, we pray you would stir up our faith now. Lord, we pray that you would encourage, that you would heal, that you would strengthen, that you would save now. Lord, as your spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if we are children, Lord, then we are heirs. And if we are heirs, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Lord, impress that upon us by your Holy Spirit now. Lord, we ask all of this in the mighty, matchless name of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you 
and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. You are blessed in Jesus Christ. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.